Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me by Squadcast is my co-host, of course, Dr. Robert Spies. Uh, normally we're just up the road from each other, but today uh, Bob is halfway across the Pacific Ocean, but uh, he is with us via the magic of technology. And we have two guests tonight for you. Really interesting topic I think a lot of people are going to be interested in. Bob, would you like to introduce tonight's guest? Yeah, so we're very pleased uh, to be back uh, on ground after spending a little bit of uh, our recent uh, shows uh, investigating marine things and talking to marine ecologists. Uh, so tonight we're very pleased to have uh, two guests from the Water Institute of the uh, Occidental Arts and Ecology Center just down the road in Sonoma County in Occidental. And they are... Uh, Kate Lundquist and Brock Dolman, and uh, welcome to our show. Thanks Happy so much. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. and we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, beavers and uh, the disappearance and reestablishment of beaver populations and all the good things that beavers do to uh, transform terrestrial ecosystems, uh, often degraded systems, into uh, something that's uh, a little bit better, at least in our eyes. So uh, we usually ask our guests to talk a little bit about a, about their background. And um, Brock, could you tell us a little bit about why you got interested in being a biologist and the kind of things that you, uh, you've uh, kind of led you to where you are now? Sure. Well, well thanks for having us and appreciate your all's show. So yeah, I'm a, a biologist, restoration ecologist, and pretty much have been one since birth. Had the blessing of my family living in Idaho, Montana, and hunter, fisher people. And so um, just being outside in ponds, fishing, chasing snakes and frogs and turtles and such. And my dad was in the Marines, so I got to live in many places. Our family cabin is in near West Yellowstone, Tetons. And I grew up fish in beaver ponds for trout, and spent time in Japan, catching tadpoles as a three-year-old in Japan and four-year-old in Southern California, actually quite a bit, Oceanside, Camp Pendleton area, and then middle school, high school in Chesapeake Bay, where I started fishing beaver ponds for bass and bluegill and crappie and bullheads and things. And so um, I went to ultimately went to UC Santa Cruz and I did a double major as an undergrad in conservation biology and agroecology. And so mainly work as a restoration ecologist at the nexus of all human land use from ranching, agriculture, forestry, urbanization, rural suburbanization. How do we reconnect our human settlement patterns to be more in line with how biology and ecology actually works? Cool. So, Kate, um, maybe you could fill us in a little bit about your background as well. Thank you. Absolutely. So I am also an ecologist by birth, though not so much by uh, academic training. I grew up traveling the world with my family, and uh, thankfully they were very interested in exploring cultures and the great outdoors. And so um, growing up in Santa Cruz County and having access to the Monterey Bay my whole life uh, was a huge uh, teacher for me. Many logged in many, many hours swimming, diving, surfing, all of the things that one does in that beautiful ecosystem. And um, 
And then later, uh, after getting a degree, a liberal arts degree, actually, in, at UC Santa Barbara, I was very interested in ecological design, how to conserve these incredible ecosystems that I got to grow up and play in. And that's when I connected with the Occidental Arts Ecology Center and was very uh, excited by the work they were doing around uh, conservation hydrology and conservation biology to restore watersheds and got involved and have been working there for almost the last 20 years now. Cool. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Um, so the story we're going to be talking about tonight is uh, beavers. And um, you two are, have been involved, I know, on the ground uh, pre pretty extensively in the beaver restoration. Maybe you could fill us a little fill us in a little bit on the kind of the history of beavers, uh, beaver ecology. Uh, I, I know a lot of people know about how, how we trapped them out several hundred years ago, uh, but uh, they've been on the, uh, been out of California for a while. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about, you know, how they've kind of come back uh, into California and the, the kind of role that you guys are playing. Right. Well, I can I'm, offer a little bit about kind of how it is that uh, the Oxnard Ecology Center, and as you mentioned, that Kate and I co-direct our Water Institute. And part of that Water Institute is training is like called Basins of Relations, where we we're starting sustaining community watershed groups. But we were really in collaboration doing that work on primarily on behalf of thinking about salmonid, salmon recovery, the uh, Occidental is in the Russian River Basin, and it's in the headwaters of a tributary called the Dutchbill Creek that flows from Occidental down to Monterio in the lower Russian River for people who know this area. And it's historically a very important coho watershed and a steelhead watershed. And we got involved in coho recovery work in the late 90s, early 2000s. And in the midst of supporting all such things around watershed restoration and dam removal and re fish-friendly roads and in-stream habitat and, you know, things to bring the fish back. Um, having myself personally a long history with beavers, as I said, in Idaho and Maryland, just got to thinking about beavers in the early 2000s and saying, huh, why aren't we talking about beavers? Because there's a significant amount of literature at the time from Oregon and Washington, especially correlating the presence of beaver habitat um, benefiting salmonid habitat, specifically coho habitat. And so started bringing that question into California again 20 plus years ago. And we'll say that it was met with uh, not a lot of support <laughs> and a lot of bad jokes. And, and, um, and so I think uh, through the early 2000s, we just kind of kept plodding along. And then by 2012 or so, we officially kicked off what we call our Bring Back the Beaver campaign. And um, I can, we can talk more about some of the components of that campaign, some of the work we had to do with historic ecology, um, and then we can, if you want, get into more of the, yeah, the history in California and with beaver trapping and some of the benefits of beaver, and then at some point the current policy stuff, but I'll, I'll let Kate take one. Yeah, so California has what we call a beaver blind spot in part because beaver were nearly extirpated. So... California got hit early by the trappers because of its access um, by seagoing captains and just the fur rush was the first major extractive uh, movement that happened on California's uh, coast and 
while they were mostly seeking marine fur bearers, they were going to, of course, snap up any terrestrial fur bearers that they could get. And so uh, the beaver early on, late 1700s, were already nearly extirpated. And once the gold rush took over, kind of the beaver took the back seat in terms of extractive passions by the settlers. And however, they were still trapped to near extinction. And fast forward to 1900, there are estimated 1,000 beaver left in the state. And the California Division of Fish and Game, as it was called back then, finally passed a law to protect beaver in 1910. And from that point forward, it was an interesting dynamic of trying to recover that species and repopulate the the state. There was definitely a lot of conflict because the settlers had come to make a living. And one of the big ways they did it were draining all of the beaver wetlands so that they could reclaim that those wetland soils and farm in them. And so there was already this direct conflict established in our state between the hominids wanting to farm and ditch and convey water and our amazing water engineer, the beaver. And so thankfully, the department did start moving beaver around as early as 1923. They had a conservation translocation program that ran until 1950. And the state of California moved over 1,200 beaver across the state. Mm. And that helped reestablish some of the populations that had once been prevalent in the state. So that helped stabilize the population. And um, since then, there hasn't been as much tracking of population dynamics, distribution, abundance, and whatnot. Mo- most of the feedback that we get is through depredation permits and where those beaver are killed and how many are killed and whatnot. Um, but there's been some really exciting changes that are gonna um, that we can talk about uh, later that are gonna change how we perceive beaver and how we track their populations. So. We still don't know exactly how many we have right now, but but we will hopefully be working on that. Maybe I'll just fill in a little bit more on, on the history question. So what's interesting, as Kate said, is that the Russian fur trappers and those folks were working the coast. So Fort Ross is in Sonoma County. 1812 is a trapping outpost there kind of a thing. And then we get the, the sort of mountain man trappers that people think about, the Jedediah Smiths, Fremont, Carson, Walker, you know, some of those big names. And they come over land, Hudson Bay trappers, you know, John Jacob pastor type folks. And they really come down from the north and from the east. And they're working the Sierras, over the Sierras. And they hit the Central Valley, Sacramento, San Joaquin, the Delta. Sacramento was called the Buena Ventura in the 1830s because it had so many beaver. It was so rich with beaver. Upper parts of the Klamath, what is Scott Valley right now, the Scott River, um, it was called Beaver Valley back in the 1830s, and they trapped thousands of beaver out of that system back then. And so by, as Kate said, by the gold rush by 1850, the bulk of the primary removal of beaver had really happened, and certainly gold miners and others were whacking beaver subsequent to that. So interestingly, by 19, again, by this 1910, 1920 window, in 1930s, you get um, people like... Um, Joseph Grinnell, you know, an early mammologist in California trying to study mammals. And they're trying to 
recreate historic populations a hundred years later from the beginning of the trapping. And as far as they could tell at the time, they put out a map in the 30s. And then there's actually a report called The Status of the Beaver in California in 1942 by a guy named Donald Tappy, who worked for this division of Fish and Game. And they put out a map that more or less said beaver were only native, according to their thought at the time, to the Central Valley, Sacramento, San Joaquin Delta, along the Colorado at the bottom of the state, and, and kind of up above the Shasta into the upper Klamath. And that they weren't native on the coast south of the Klamath, including the Bay Area, and they weren't native in the Sierra above a thousand feet on either side of the Sierra. And so a group of us in 2012 and 2013 had been meeting for years prior to that, and we just didn't resonate it with, and we started doing historic ecology. So by 2012 and 13, we published two peer-reviewed papers in the California Department of Fish and Games Journal. The first paper is Historic Ecology on Beaver in the Sierra Nevada, and the second one is a coastal paper. And that those papers are really where this historic ecology movement really tried to step in and dig deep into some of the different types of evidence, uh, ethnographic evidence. We found uh, the word for beaver in over 60 California native languages, for instance. We look at trappers' journals, logs, newspaper articles, and 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 through those two papers, put a, out a new map, if you will, of what we considered to be the historic distribution and range of beaver, which was quite a bit wider or larger than what had been asserted 100 years prior, if you will. And so that's a really interesting piece of the puzzle towards the beaver blind spot that Kate was mentioning. Hmm. Cool. <clears throat> do, do beaver dams uh, uh, leave any kind of a record? Uh, I mean, once the beaver is gone, are, are any trace of the dams uh, persist so that you could use some of that sort of data? Yeah, absolutely. And that is some of the physical evidence that we were able to use for those peer-reviewed papers. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Jack James, he had found in the 1980s a buried beaver dam that had been unearthed through some erosive forces and recognized it as such from the chew marks and the jumble and the way it had been assembled and knew enough to uh, get it carbon dated. And it was had he carbon dated the three different levels and the earliest being from 540, the middle from like 780, and then the top was 1850, which was, we know what happened in 1850. Mm -hmm. So that's probably when that beaver family was tra trapped out. And then other buried beaver dams were also carbon dated later on in the same area. This was up in the Plumas County area at 5,000 feet, well above that thousand foot threshold that Brock had mentioned. And then more recently, uh, we have been doing work with the Maidu Summit Consortium up in Plumas County on a 2,300 acre meadow that was returned to them through the PG&E lawsuit. And so they have been able to take over and start managing that amazing landscape, which is um, Yellow Creek runs through, and it's an important tributary to the North Fork Feather River, and they used to have beaver there and really want beaver back. And so we found signs of remnant dams in that creek and in fact did find jumbles of wood that were very much resembling a beaver dam and then had those carbon dated and it turns out they were 1270 years old as well. So 
that's one of the ways that you can do this. There's also um, Dr. Ellen Wool out of Colorado State University. She's been doing some really uh, amazing work in the Rockies using ground penetrating radar to detect beaver dams that are basically buried in montane meadows and has posited that a lot of these meadow formations came as a result of those incredible beaver complexes that were built on scale over years and then filled in and became mountain meadows. So we haven't been doing that in California yet, though I think that could be a really fun tool to be utilizing as well to further expand our understanding of, of their historic reach. Yeah. I wonder if that explains something you see an awful lot uh, all over the West, really, is these meadows, uh, especially intermontane meadows, a big, broad, flat meadow with a deeply incised stream channel cutting right down through the middle of it. And uh, as a geologist, you look at that and think, okay, what what's going on here? Because the meadow is created by one kind of hydrologic system where the water is moving very slowly and depositing sediment. And then why would it suddenly change and all of a sudden the stream is cutting right down through all the sediment that it just laid down? How much of that do you suppose is actually beaver created? I would I would say that I think at this point our colleagues throughout the arid mountain west, especially in the mountain meadow folks, the Great Basin, are pretty darn convinced and have a number of these case studies that the the first cut was the trapping of beavers, the removal of beaver dams and their associated beaver works that had indeed impounded and increased the aggradation and the flattening and the retention. So they were actors in that fluvial geomorphology space to really lower the slope and aggrade materials. And then they just kept working it in the, the widths of the available space over thousands of years to create these wetted, peat-rich, organic wetland spaces. And then you trap them out, the beaver dams fail. And then oftentimes there's upland forest land conversion, grazing showed up early, sheep and cows especially really hit it. We increased the runoff coefficient, we channelized the water, we ditched the creeks. And then those meadow soils just started incising like you are talking about and very quickly drop their base elevation, dehydrate the meadow, and then sagebrush and conifers invade. And it's better for grazing for a little while, but we lose the water holding capacity of those sponges, the carbon sequestration that now that peat is venting off as CO2, any of the aquatic habitat up there. And that's kind of a pan, it's a, it's a de-beavering is one of the early dehydration <laughs> pandemics of the colonization of North America. Is, is a thesis a lot of us are tracking right now. So basically a really fundamental change in the landscape. Yeah, and, and we have our colleagues with the U.S. Forest Service uh, Pacific Southwest Research Station have uh, created this amazing model based on LIDAR and other data sets to really recreate and construct the, they're calling it the Lost Meadow model. They just published their paper about that. And um, it's really showing that when you look at the topography in our montane environments um, and you remove the vegetative layer and just really look at the LIDAR, you can tell these areas that were in fact had the capacity to be wetted by the flows coming through those, those low gradient systems. And so our 
current understanding of the extent of meadows in our Sierra Nevada, Southern Cascades has been limited. And with these new um, ways of looking at them, it, it, it would appear that they there is a lot more square footage, actually square miles <laughs> that were in fact meadows and that we can restore them to their former footprint through removing conifers that are encroaching and rehydrating the soils and working to grade those systems so that they can reconnect to their historic floodplains and um, return that incredibly important habitat that has been heavily degraded in our uplands. So could uh, aerial spectral imaging uh, be applied because uh, it can differentiate different types of uh, vegetation on the landscape and it, there might and they're probably I would I've been thinking I don't know but I'm thinking that there's uh, these these relic beaver uh, habitat has probably got a, uh, some vegetation that may be characteristic of that particular, you know, history. It, it is. So there's a number of scientists, like Kate mentioned, um, the, the Lost Meadow model, the folks Adam and, and Karen who are working on that. Dr. Emily Fairfax, who she's, she's very well known right now for a paper she published called Smokey the Beaver where she used a series of different types of, of, of LIDAR data, of vegetation data, land sat, land fire type data, and looked at areas pre-big fire and post-fire and the presence of beavers or not, and, the, and the, the areas that didn't burn because they were wetted by beaver or did burn, and, and has constructed a sense of this idea that Smokey the Bear has been being saved by Smokey the Beaver when these areas burn off. And it's an interesting thing to what Kate mentioned about the Lost Meadow model is really the, with some of these big fires, some of the biggest trees are now getting burned off because they grew in these meadow soils and people want to protect the big trees. But ironically, those are the, the trees are big because they're invader trees in the meadow that dehydrated after the beaver were killed. But we don't want to cut them out because we think they're these legacy forest, but in fact, they're not. They're an artifact of bee beavering. But as they burn off, the conifers die, we actually have a chance to rethink and rehydrate those meadows and reconvert them to a meadow where we might not have wanted to take those trees out in a green forest. That's an interesting angle, yeah. What about in the coast range? Uh, I see the same kind of dissected meadows uh, out here in the coast range quite a lot. Well, do we know anything about the distribution, prehistoric distribution of beavers here? We definitely have found some evidence, you know, lots of historic accounts of trapping beaver on the coast mm -hmm. and um, things like, you know, beaver teeth found in archaeological digs mm -hmm. and whatnot. So, um, you know, the, every ecosystem has its carrying capacity and certainly, you know, depending on where you are in the coastal systems are going to dictate, you know, how many beaver could withstand a certain gradient and flow regime. Um, what we've found currently where beaver do exist on the coast, and they are thriving quite fine in, in places. They're in Big River, you know, they're in the Eel and uh, several other coastal rivers. Uh, they, they're, if it's a big flashy system, their dams are going to not persist as long per se, mm -hmm. which is fine. They just rebuild. Mm -hmm. um, and in the bigger systems like the Smith River, for example, they are not putting in channel spanning dams. And so 
But there's been some amazing work done there to really look at whether or not those beaver are still providing ecosystem services to other species. And in fact, the work of Marissa Parrish and Justin Garwood uh, from California Department of Fish and Wildlife indicates that through snorkel surveys and, and other surveying methods, they discovered that the beaver, their burrows themselves and the stick piles that they toss out of those bank burrows were providing really critical refugia for all kinds of native species, including listed coho, salmon, and steelhead, and, and other herps and, and whatnot were in there. And so it's it's pretty exciting development because we, you know, for people who have been paying attention to beaver, everyone's really excited about their dam building capacity, which is really incredible. That's one of the big ways that they create habitat modifications and, and manage and create wetlands. But that's not the only thing that they do. You know, they're, they're trying to basically stay alive and create deep aquatic habitat to avoid predators and to also have access to their food sources. They're herbivores. They're looking for ideally willows, you know, cottonwoods, anything in, in that family. Um, but they're also looking for roots and bulbs and grasses and whatnot. And they're, they're trying to rehydrate the landscape so that they can grow the aquatics, you know, the species that are very riparian dependent and, and, and even aquatic species that they really favor. And so in, in so doing all of those activities that they do, they dig canals, they build dams, they build lodges, freestanding lodges in still water, or they'll build bank burrows in fast water. All of that is creating this incredible mosaic of aquatic habitat that a bunch of different species key into and benefit from. And so it's not just the dams that beaver are creating that, that are so beneficial. It's, it's much more uh, nuanced and, and complex than that. And, and once you start digging into it, you start to see all of the different little micro habitats that they're creating and, and the different species that have actually specialized and, and learned to coexist with beaver, whether it's the coho salmon that have figured out how to, you know, the juvenile can wriggle through the dams or the, you know, certain insects really prefer the the varied topography of a beaver wetland because beaver will dig canals, even just little shallow ones at the bottom of the pond to give them a little bit deeper space to, to swim across that pond. And that creates different aspects and that insects favor the macroinvertebrates. So it's, yeah, it's a very complex and diverse world that beaver are creating and managing. And this is one of the reasons why they've been so appreciated as a keystone species. If you've just joined us, uh, we're very pleased to be able to be talking about beaver restoration in California. And we have two really well-informed guests, uh, Kate Lundquist and Brock Dahlman from the Water Institute. And they're co-directors there at the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center in Sonoma County. Fascinating stuff. So you you yeah, you know, their beavers are frequently referred to as ecosystem engineers, and I think what I'm hearing that's a little different from the usual story is uh, that there's a lot more to it than the obvious part of, you know, changing the hydrodynamics of, of the stream systems that they're in. There's, a, uh, that has a big effect, but there are a lot of other ramifications and other things that, that they do that also has a big effect. So the the ecosystems that that most uh, 
you know, European descended people encountered when they came out west had already been changed and were in the process of being altered to what they are now. But that's not what was there for thousands of years before that. Yeah, I think even in the in the the science, the the river science folks, the, the fluvial geomorphologists, who, like you say, kind of almost have a sense of the the idea of a single threaded channel, like, but that would be sinuous and curvaceous and some oxbows and that kind of stuff. And and even that basic idea, Luna Leopold, for instance, you know, one of Berkeley professor, very famous hydrologist, was kind of, a, I think promoting that concept and what's really coming out is in these lower gradient flatter systems when you really look at the history they were uh ana branching anastomosed what what is often referred to as a this idea of stage zero in, in a, a channel evolution model if people want to look at the work of clure and thorn you could look them up clure and thorn stage zero and that our our wetlands, we had so much more surface area and sinuosity and width to these systems. They weren't these single threaded, fast flowing kind of uh, classic channels. They were just messy and full of wood and full of, and they've been simplified. And that simplification increases the rate at which water leaves the land, increases the rate at which sediment releases from the land, the dehydration of landscapes as we incise upland water holding capacity and and beaver were yeah they they manage water but they manage soil but they're irrigating landscapes to grow their food so they're farmers and they're foresters but they're also engineers and they're masons that they're plastering the face of their dams but they're canal diggers but they're also firefighters and they're also (laughs) like creators of habitat because they like to have all their fish and bird and frog and snake and plant friends with them because and so that idea of a keystone species as an ecosystem engineer is is not just I don't it's not it's more than just the metaphor the symbol of them they're, it's there if anyone's ever had the blessing of being in a full tilt beavered habitat the complexity is is astounding wow so um it sounds like there's a kind of an analogy, in my, at least in my mind, uh, between beaver habit, terrestrial beaver habitat and what goes on in, in uh, saltwater marshes and uh, wetlands, where they've got uh, this fragmentation of the, uh, of the land surface with little channels and, and, and nastimosing things. And you, <laughs> you see that in, uh, at the mouth of rivers and Alaska and so forth, really. It's really a, an incredibly complex environment that's been kind of cut up into little niches, if it will, by the mm-hmm. geomorphology. Uh, right, it's just a few millimeters difference in in elevation uh, creates a completely different habitat zone sometimes. And this this is happening in beaver wetlands, and beaver actually live in estuarine systems as well. In the Skagit Delta, there are very a whole bunch of beaver in there that are working that that beautiful flatland and this that, the Skagit River in Washington yes exactly yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah there's been some great studies on those beaver in there and and how they're they're retaining the fresh water in certain places and it's 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 creating a mosaic of of different elevations but also you know water salinity and, and whatnot so um and we've noticed too that j- just 
in in some of these meadow systems, for example, back to just those those micro habitats, the beaver will build a, a large primary dam, but then they will build this very tiny, in some cases, just six, eight inch dam that goes all the way out onto the floodplain and creates this, this fen, basically, that is just the perfect habitat for a frog like Cascades Frog, which is soon to be listed. Um, very threatened. And yet you find these places in the meadows where that's what's happening thanks to the beaver and this tiny little dam that they've managed to set up. And that is just full of, of the, the metamorphs of, of these cascade frogs. And they're, it's, so we, we see a lot of those examples in, in various ecosystems across the state. And the beavers build those little uh, dams to create the right conditions for a certain kind of food that they like. Is that yeah, interesting. Exactly. Wow. Wow. Yep. I mean, their yeah. their job is to, they're clear, like many indigenous communities all over the world, that water is life. And especially mm. in the arid mountain west, in our Mediterranean climates and such, the longer water stays around, the more hydrated the system is, the carrying capacity to support and irrigate life is greater. The fecundity is proportionate to the presence of hydration, full stop, in a freshwater terrestrial interface. So when beaver can what you're saying is imagine a, a sloping landscape a beaver dam is a grade control and as it backs that water up it flattens that slope and as a slope flattens the turbidity and the bed load of a system has to drop out and, and you create those deltaic shapes like you're talking about with the mouths of rivers and and glacial systems so they're biological delta builders basically by flattening slopes with dams to then upgrade and trap material to build these big wetlands, for instance, these mountain meadows that become wetlands. And kind of what Kate said, the, the primary dam may be in that main channel that they're trying to gum up to begin with, and they bring that surface water elevation up. And as the water tries to escape the ends of the dam, the shoulders, if you will, they just chase those along. So they'll, once they fill the main dam up, the water tries to escape, they'll put more sticks in. And then it tries to escape on one lateral side and they just keep putting material in as much as is needed. And the further away from the channel they get as they laterally move from there, it often looks like, kind of like Kate said, it's just pushing mud up three inches, two inches, one inch mm -hmm. until it hits the toe slope of what controls the width of the valley. And so that these wing dams will fade off from eight feet tall in the middle of the creek. 200 yards later they're two inches tall of just mud and and sedges they're incredible because they're just water seeks its own level and their goal is to retain as much water as they can and so anywhere it leaks out leaking water sound drives beaver crazy right that's famous right the, yeah, the, they yeah. can hear that yeah and immediately They've respond been, yeah they did a study where they played they put out a, a stereo that was playing running water sounds and the beaver just covered it with mud <laughs> to try to get it to, to stop making the noise because that's what cues them to build and to fix the holes in their leaky dams. Yeah. And, and that's how so, trappers, so trappers go to a beaver dam, they break open the dam right. and they stick the trap in that spot where the sound and the beavers go to it to fix it and it's unfortunately their demise. Yeah. I wonder if we uh, might turn this around in a sense that um, you, you, you're kind of in the restoration business. Uh, 
take us through the process of um, kind of identifying a uh, system that might be good for putting beavers back onto the landscape and kind of all the yeah. what you have to go through and what are some of the geomorphic and biological processes that follow on from those decisions? Well, first off, um, there when we think about beaver restoration, it's we think of it in a holistic fashion because there's several different actions one can take to uh, leverage that incredible um, force that beaver has on the land. So we start with taking care of the beaver that we have already. So if they are, if humans are having conflict with them, we try to alleviate the conflict. There are many protective structures we can build. We can, you know, protect trees. We can protect culverts. We can, we can slightly lower dam levels to, to try to reduce impacts of flooding because we don't want to de-beaver our systems that already have them. We want them to stay as long as they can and uh, provide the, the benefits that they're providing. And they're also going to survive longer if they stay put. So keeping them in place, taking care of the ones that we have is, is what we always start with to see if there's ways that we can do that. And um, there's there's funding now available for that that the state has made it uh, available, which is super exciting. And um, and then we really want to see if there are ways that we can enhance beaver habitat. So we have an example in the foothills. Uh, Placer Land Trust owns a property called Doty Ravine Preserve, and the beaver had been historically trapped there, and they were trying to restore this this single threaded very um, dry area. And when they got uh, help with the from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to do the restoration, they ended up saying, well, first of all, we're going to stop killing the beaver and we're going to actually enhance the beaver uh, system that is here by reinforcing existing beaver dams so that they won't blow out as quickly and they can actually um, stay there longer, persist longer, have a, have a greater effect. And then we're going to actually mimic the beaver and do things that we call beaver dam analogs and other kinds of in-stream structures. And so really looking at the system and doing a thorough analysis of what is the, the space that we have to work with. So there's a thing, you know, you can just through LIDAR or other means really look at what the, the, the inundation area is is in a system and enhance that and really support the beaver in taking advantage of all the space possible using the materials that are on site and leveraging the flow and leveraging the sediment that's coming through so that's this is all part of what we call process-based restoration we want to take advantage of the space use uh, the restoration techniques over time and leverage the energy and use those on-site materials to really create a more uh, anastomosed and, and diverse system there. And then ultimately we want to see if there are places where either coexistence, places where coexistence measures have failed and we want to give those beaver a second chance. Um, and there are places where there is adequate habitat, then that's when we can have the conversation about restoring those beaver, you know, doing a conservation translocation of taking those beaver from the places where coexistence has been exhausted and we have a good space for them to go and, and be reestablished. And all of the things that we I've talked about so far have been happening in California and have been um, really just 
taking off as restoration techniques. The last, though, the trans conservation translocation is something that we haven't been able to do until recently. So this is a huge moment that we are in that I referred to earlier, which is in 2022, the governor proposed to fund a new beaver restoration program to be headed up by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife with five permanent staff whose job mm -hmm. is to basically do create a beaver management plan to come up with a coexistence toolkit to identify places on their own lands that they are managing where that they could be demonstrating these coexistence techniques and then ultimately to start identifying places to do conservation and carrying out conservation translocation so this process is underway and um and this is going to be a historic moment where uh, those conservation translocations will start happening again in California very soon. So it's it's an exciting technique and people get really interested in those conservation translocations, especially if they're in an area where beaver have been extirpated and they could really um, use that kind of help. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's, there's so many more areas, you know, to th so many more steps to think about before we, we, we advance right to that. So we're, we're, we've been working very diligently over the last two decades, really to educate people about all the different ways that we can, um, do this kind of beaver restoration. And, you know, certainly the, the mimicking of beaver can happen in places where beaver have yet to be returned. And that's been happening a lot as well on the coast and um, in the foothills and, and up in our Sierra and, and Southern Cascades as well. Yeah, Rock, I think I remember a couple of years ago reading about, I, I think it was in the Scott Valley, uh, where they were basically trying to mimic uh, the beaver dam, uh, and it was, you know, it sounded great, but now listening to you talk about all the different ramifications and the complexities of a natural beaver habitat and the things they do, it's just not as simple. And I just really doubt very much that we can, uh, mimic what beavers do because we don't really understand it well enough yet. Well, yeah, it's great you mentioned. So the Scott River Watershed Council, folks up in mm -hmm. Scott Valley there and tributary to the Klamath. Yeah, they got they are very excited about working with beaver and towards recovering their river and their coho salmon and, and you know, other important needs they have. So, yes, they did take on and they permitted what are known as these beaver dam analogs. They were the first folks in California to get official permits. So it's imagine if you were to pound a bunch of stakes vertically across the channel and then kind of make a wicker weave of mm -hmm. willows. And, and then you might try to plaster that face so it holds water. Those are the early versions. They look different these days. They're not that. And they were very successful and they monitored them. And in their case, where they did that, they actually already had beaver in that system. And in a bunch of those uh, locations, the beavers then said, thank you for that leg up or the dam up. And then and took those took those structures on and improved them and enhanced them or took advantage of them. Um, <laughs> Thanks. But, we'll take it from here. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I, I think kind of one of the things that Kate and I have been doing a lot to the point she was talking about, about the enthusiasm around our campaign is bring back the beaver. So the bring back part, the relocation or the rewilding or what is the department calls conservation translocation is while there's a supply of bad beavers in many people's minds, one they can't go just <laughs> what they're mad with. The question is, where's the demand 
for currently beaverless places that we could bring beaver back to. And, and, and so what are those conditions that beaver need is really a critical thing. And so Kate and I have worked with a number of, of organizations and tribal groups doing feasibility assessments. So beaver, as an aquatic mammal, we're really looking for perennial water flow. We're looking for deep water because beaver are, beaver are very tasty and lots of animals you know, bears or wolves or coyotes, right. sea otters eat them. River, uh, river they have otters. a lot of meat, and they're very slow. And they're very slow. And humans, we know, are the are the dominant predator, tragically, of beavers. So we need, and and so that's why they want that impounded water. They want that underwater entrance into their lodge or their bank burrow. They need enough flow to support enough vegetation. Beer are vegetarians. They don't eat fish. So they're going to eat that inner bark of trees. They're going to eat the roots of cattails. They'll eat herbaceous plants and grasses. So they need to irrigate those riparian corridors, those wetlands. Um, if they're damming, they need building materials. The substrate of the channel, they need to be able to burrow into it. If it's solid rock, they can't. So anyway, there's a, like what's called a scorecard where we go and evaluate a, a, a beaver suitability evaluation of a proposed site to verify that it would it is has the condition suitable on behalf of the beaver themselves. So if we were to bring the family of beaver there, they would be able to survive and thrive in that place. And a lot of places people want beaver don't fit the bill entirely. So that's kind of where Kate was headed. We talk about we're pre-beavering. If we want to re-beaver, we need to pre-beaver and, and start maybe putting in these beaver dam analogs, slowing the flow, doing some erosion control, planting willows in advance. Like what can we do to get the house in order so that when it's time to bring the beaver back, we've done our darndest to help them out. So it's a full suite of integrated holistic restoration ecology. Hmm must be fun because it's an emerging field and you're just learning and implementing what you learn as fast as you can learn it, right? I'd say one of the really fun parts right now, and we just did a build like a beaver workshop up in the meadow that Kate mentioned before and that and where Yellow Creek is on the Mighty Summit Consortium property. And there's uh, um, Plumas uh, National Forest up there is the nexus between fire and fuel load and, and all the vegetation management or the defensible space or the shaded fuel breaks and the opportunity to limb and thin our forests for fire resiliency and health and take the, that what people call slash. We don't consider that slash trash. We consider it a beneficial biomass that if we strategically use it to um, integrate it into our streams that are incising and dewatering and eroding, we can act like beavers and take that waste product and use it for stream restoration and rewetting in advance of pre-beavering. And so we get this connection of what, what Kate's coined this, the fuels to flows. So the idea of, of a win-win situation where we take the fuel load, we're doing water restoration for water quantity, quality, groundwater recharge, carbon sequestration, biodiversity benefits, habitat, with the problem of a of landscape that's excessively flammable. And that's really the fun part is these nexus or intersectional solutions where we're bridging between fire and water and carbon and life and diversity and and multiple win-win solutions and beaver are just a, an amazing agent as a keystone in the mix of that portfolio wow 
So what's their current status then in California? Are, uh, it sounds like their numbers are uh, probably increasing and their distribution is expanding. It's still to be determined. So they, in 2019, the, uh, the Wildlife Protection Act was passed and that uh, basically makes it so that you can no longer trap any fur bearer in California. And so beaver can no longer be recreationally trapped. And before when they were being recreationally trapped, there was no bag limit. And so really hard to say how many we had and exactly where they all were. But now at least with that pressure off of them, we, we could see a change in their overall numbers. And also with this new program, you know, the department is definitely starting to try to gather all the data sets and get a better sense of, of distribution. Right, I'm, I'm getting the sense there's no statewide survey or hasn't been for quite some time. No, I mean, literally not since since 1942, yeah. since the state of the beaver, yeah, status of beaver report. And so this is know, a recurring go- theme on this show, by the way, we, <laughs> we, we just keep running into this thing where, you know, maybe 50 or 60 years ago, there was something that was in trouble and everybody knew exactly how many of them there were. They were being intensively studied and then they kind of yeah. recovered and everybody went, okay, we're done here and just pay no attention to them at all anymore. So yeah, yeah this is fundamental basic data like how many of them are there and how widely distributed are they exactly well especially when you're trying to approve you know how many can be depredated and whatnot it's you're just kind of operating in the dark there and so thankfully they have persisted they have not been extirpated and you know they do send out juveniles dispersing every year and you know that can help expand uh, their population numbers and, and distribution as well and then in just this year uh in june the department released new guidance on depredation permits and how they will be issued here to forward. You know, this is actually in part as a result of a petition that we, along with the Environmental Protection Information Center and the Center for Biological Diversity, filed with the Fish and Game um, Commission in 2019, asking that they reconsider the language they have in their how they issue depredation permits for beaver because it, the language is that the department shall basically issue a depredation permit. And what we are asking is that there be greater consideration for making sure that coexistence measures were exhausted first, and then also taking into account whether or not there were listed species present that could be harmed through the removal of beaver depredation, uh, lethal management, basically. So um, this new guidance that was released in June of this year by the department is similar to the guidance around uh, black bear and mountain lion. And it's basically uh, the department now is empowered to basically require that landowners explore all the coexistence techniques before a, a depredation permit is issued and and to also assess whether or not there are listed species if, if their property falls within the range of, of potential listed species and so this is a huge change and you know we're hoping the outcome is that there's just a lot more awareness of how to do coexistence and support for doing that as well and that we just better account for, for impacts of, of, you know, beaver removal on our listed species. Because there have been some cases, unfortunately, in California where 
beaver dams were breached or beaver were removed and, and listed species uh, died as a result. So mm-hmm. we don't want to see that happen if we can avoid that. So the department's been really uh, supportive and on board with this. And through their new restoration program, they are going to be really helping get the word out and, and provide that kind of guidance. And, and the human wildlife conflict program within the department as well got new staff. They have now 10 permanent staff, two per region, and their sole job is to respond to human wildlife conflicts, and they will get fully schooled on all of the different beaver <laughs> coexistence techniques as well to, to really support landowners in, in implementing those strategies because they're super cost-effective, and they've been proven to work really well uh, in places all over North America, and really California is just now... Um, more actively getting on board with that. So we're really excited to be supporting that and be part of that and just help people figure out how to coexist. Because it's, I mean, it's no joke. If you've been in a beaver modified habitat, they can, you know, affect great change. And we do have infrastructure that's vulnerable. Yes. And so, you know, we get it. We want to support people in in finding those solutions. And um, so... Yeah, I was going to say one one solution we OAC are specifically excited about. That's kind of a new variation on a on a solution of of when when there's say a culvert or something like that. The beavers are like, great, that roadbed is a nice dam, and there's just this one hole in the middle. We just have to solve <laughs> right. that hole. Let's plug that up and make a nice pond here. You know, they're 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 um ecologically lazy right metabolically smart they only need as much energy as they need to and so um, there is a process where there's different ways to either protect that culvert or if you do have a dam you could notch the dam and put a pipe that goes over top of the dam and on the in upside of the, the in you know the upstream side you you sink the pipe and you put a cage around it so that the water can go through the pipe they can't beavers can't plug it up and you can, based on the elevation of that pipe, you can regulate the height of the water in that impoundment to to the elevation that you want. But in the low elevation, so think about Sacramento Valley, rice country, the, the National Wildlife Refuges, these, these gravity irrigation flood ditches and channels. They have um, cement weirs, you know, that they convey water where you can slide, you know, wood or or up and down to regulate flow the beavers see that as just a hole in the dam and they plug them up and uh-huh. it's really intense and so the folks at Sutter National Wildlife Refuge came up with a device where they kind of put a metal housing that slides on the front of this concrete weir and then there's a pipe you know a plastic pipe of different size depending on how much water you need to convey that's perforated but underwater so the beaver can't plug it up and then you can fake the beaver out, the water stays there, and you don't have to go every morning and spend an hour cleaning out the mud and sticks and then throw your back out. And, then have... <laughs> and so we call it the beaver back saver because we're saving human backs while we help bring the beaver back. And we have a, a wonderful uh, little video and some resources on our website at oac.org, bring back the beaver campaign about how to make this DIY device and install it yourself. And so there's lots of innovative ways to coexist with the beaver and get the benefits without the hassles. Well, that sounds cool. We will, uh, by the way, have uh, some links to some of this information 
on our website. So if listeners want to follow along uh, and and look up and learn more about this stuff, we'll put that on ecologyhour.wordpress.com, and we'll have links both to uh, the uh, Occidental Center for the Arts uh, Water Institute, where uh, our guests are the co-directors, and also to some of the scientific papers that they've mentioned along the way. So a lot more to learn about this stuff and follow up. I can see some of our listeners wanting to figure out how do we get some beavers in our backyards here. Although we actually do, right? We have them in the upper Big River drainage already, right? You do indeed. Yeah, and I would also suggest, too, that we can provide a link to our California Process-Based Restoration Network, which is a network of folks interested in beaver and process-based restoration doing these beaver dam analogs and whatnot. And like Brock mentioned, we just had our annual field workshop. That was a huge success. We had two, one in the Scott River watershed, and then the other was up in the in the Yellow Creek system. But we do these every year. We train people how to do these techniques. We always make sure that we have agency folks and regulators there to help talk about permitting and and all of that. And it's, it's a really fruitful uh, experience with a lot of enthusiasm and folks can get muddy and or not <laughs> but really see firsthand how this work works and ideally you know learn how to mimic beaver in the best way and and leverage beaver in in a way that benefits the beaver themselves and then also all the other species and and our human communities that we're trying to mm-hmm. restore these systems for as well I was just going to say for your Mendocino audience, you know, yeah, as, as was mentioned earlier, the big river beavers, a bit harder to see, but if you go stand up paddleboarding in, in that system, you might be able to see some of their work. But um, over on the Willis Bypass, that that zone over there and Outlet Creek, um, there's a wonderful beaver habitat over in that system. And the Mendocino Resource Conservation District is managing that. And at times they do tours out there and that's some of the best most accessible beaver habitat in mendo parts of south fork eel in both mendocino and further up into humboldt you've got beavers kind of bits and pieces in that part of the world as well so a little bit of good beaver action in kind of the north coast further up in in mad river van dusen smith klamath there's a lot more beaver action up there um cool Interesting. Well, that just darn near does it for the hour. Uh, we lost Bob there for a minute, I think, the uh, for several minutes. The uh, power no, probably went back out in Kauai, but he's back <laughs> with us just in time for the end of the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Great story and uh, really interesting details. A lot to take away from this interview. I want to thank both of you very much for spending the time with us and helping educate Bob and thank I you. as well as our listeners. Yeah, keep up the good work, you guys. Yeah. Thanks so much, y'all. All All right. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. And if you want to find out more about this topic, the reintroduction of beavers and their impact on the landscape, go to ecologyhour.wordpress.com. We'll have links galore on there for you to follow up. Have a great evening, and thanks for listening.